You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Lydia's not here, Mr. Dead Air Nipe. Can I talk to Lydia? Lydia's gone away. Where is Lydia? She's a little girl that lives in my mouth. Gross. <laughs> I know, right? Especially if she's going to go hide in my belly. Among all the nuts <laughs> and coffee. That's why you drink so much coffee, just trying to drown the little girl that lives in your stomach. Yeah, exactly. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1980 Stanley Kubrick undisputed classic the shining you wanted to say the shining pretty bad there I, didn't you? <laughs> well yes as a, as a man who grew up with the simpsons it's hard to disassociate the simpsons treehouse of horror special which is mind-bending when you think about how good those used to be and how crappy they currently are. I haven't watched one in a long, long time. So mm, the one that's cemented in my mind is when they do a spin on The Shining, which is great. Uh, we used our don't mind if I do joke not long ago. So I don't think that that Simpsons reference will be making an appearance on this episode of Dead Air. No, it would be too meta. It would be too meta. Be too now, meta. this was a Lydia pick. Was it ever? What compelled you? This is a big movie. And I almost... I almost would think this is teetering a razor's edge of a commentary track episode. Yeah, that would be great. Except everyone and their dog has already done that. Everyone and their dog suit has already done that. So people have a lot to say about this movie. And that's the only thing that kind of pulls it back for me from being one of like the too big to just do a show on it. Big enough to do for a Halloween special or a birthday surprise. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, everyone has had their fucking kick at this can. It's oh, so yeah. much more fun for us to sit back and just do a regular episode on it. And it fits in with the theme right now of freezing your ass off and dying in the cold. She's got a big blanket on again there, creeps. I do. And the heat is on because she creeps. And Ooh. I want it to be warm in here. That's fine. I think we can. I don't even think anyone will notice. I think we're suffering I'm a minus 37 with the wind chill today. So it's yeah. uh, It's been pretty heinous in Ottawa this past couple of weeks probably the coldest on record for years and it is we've been hitting temperatures that they're saying coldest in 50 years Mm -hmm. how do you feel about that lids uh it's a lot warmer than home that's for sure i visited north bay for a little uh a little trek which made me think that next year maybe we should do this uh, again and pick some more wintry picks like we do around a christmas theme film Mm -hmm. some wintry picks i think my wintry pick will be frozen because on the way back on the late night bus i had started watching frozen Mm. and and from north bay to mattawa driving through a horrible winter storm it was it was treacherous and the buses were late and it was all bad but what made it better was having the film frozen to watch and I timed it, or the movie timed itself just perfectly. So as soon as I started it when leaving North Bay, by the time that they were ultimately stuck on the chairlift, and that's not really a spoiler uh, for that film, um, when they were ultimately stuck on it, just when the chairlift really finally truly stopped, I was going through Madawan looking up at a ski hill. And I was oh. like, this is perfect. This is what I wanted. Because Madawan scares the fucking shit out of me to begin with. 
but now doubly so. So I think next year I want to do Frozen. Since we're basically done our freezing to death in the cold shitty tundra theme with The Shining, <laughs> which is the granddaddy of all freezing to death in the cold shitty tundra. It really is. This was a film that we had considered doing a little bit earlier in our rotation, so it would have fallen in December. But we wisely, I feel, decided to do this after our return, our return, we are on a little bit of a break as we normally take around the holidays, you know, family and traveling and stuff like that. It's usually not the best time for us to be making episodes, but we're back. This is our fourth season, technically. Yeah, if we're doing that. Yeah. And I mean, if we were smart, we would just take all of January off because it is cold. So thank you, Wes. And everyone <laughs> should thank Wes. Publicly thank him for braving the fucking cold. Braving the cold, Lydia, implies that you're afraid of it, and I fear nothing. I do. I straight up fear the cold. <laughs> I didn't plug in my gloves today, and I really ought to do that. But well, I'm I'm basically a fucking wampa, as far as you're concerned. I don't get. I can just live in the cold. If this was Star Wars, I could cut you. You open. could cut me open and sleep in me. Yeah, I'm big enough. It would warm me right up. Probably. <laughs> I thought Wes smelled bad on the outside. Exactly, but. Luckily, we won't have to do that because we're in the safe and cozy domicile. It's not bad in here. Your floors are a little cold, if I could make one complaint. I've been trying to warm them up, actually, you know, but the (laughs) boiler, or the furnace, rather, (laughs) doesn't really cooperate. It's an old house, you know? It does creep, though, as you were saying. It does. It does. Which is a reference of the the novel. Um, There won't be a heck of a lot of that because we're not going to... You know, continuously compare the book and the movie like so many people do. Mm -hmm. I I recognize that far more people have watched the film nowadays, even though the book itself was a a grand bestseller. And many people a little older have actually read the book, I feel. Mm -hmm. More older people have read the book. Um, It does have a bit of a resurgence. So I will be rereading it chris had bought me a beautiful hardcover copy from subterranean press it is a beautiful signed illustrated hardcover copy so i've been leisurely rereading it Mm. and it is the most enjoyable thing because it is my number one favorite stephen king novel i've read it several times yeah that and pet cemetery are really tied and they they do share some similar themes too so i really uh that's the sort of stephen king i like if anyone ever asked Pet Cemetery is probably my favorite Stephen King story. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a really tight story. It's extremely scary. It hits a lot of buttons and hit a, hits a, a lot. There's a button in that book to be had for any person. I feel the same with The Shining if you read it closely, right? A mm-hmm. lot of people haven't read the book. And if you want to hear about the fucking book and movie comparison, you can go right to Stephen King himself because he had lots to say about that. He did very famously. Stephen King was extraordinarily vocal about his distaste for this film he's had issues here and there with other films uh he's very critical of his own uh, adaptation of uh, maximum overdrive what we talked about when we were doing our stephen king thing mm-hmm. and this is a little return to form because we are doing a stephen king film but we're not going to do a block of stephen king movies like we did although i do have another one cooking that i want to do mm-hmm. later on in the year if we're just going to talk about what 2018 is going to hold some of his Biggest complaints that I've always understood were fundamentally that Stanley Kubrick was an atheist. And it seems like a weird thing to hinge on. But if you don't believe in the afterlife, you don't believe in God, which you could argue is just the most powerful ghost of them all, then can you truly believe in 
what's going on. Can you believe in what a shining is? If you don't believe in the supernatural in any way, shape, or form, can you effectively tell this story? Uh, I suppose you can make an argument for that up and down. And his second was the that I've heard the most was his casting of Nicholson, where it's not so much of a story about a person who is a normal man, a family man, and then descends into madness and then becomes a person who would kill his family. Nicholson starts off scary, scary as fuck. From the first moment you see him, he's got that coiled spring. You know, he's going to go nuts. We've seen him go nuts in lots of films before. And the shining, uh, that was the, his going nuts career. Right. And, so I, I so I get that argument too, but those were just the two of the things that I've heard. I, I, there's many other complaints, and so Steve, Stephen King goes around and then decides to make a TV movie of The Shining, and this is where my knowledge breaks off because I do I have watched the TV movie. Mm-hmm. Me too. When it first came out, I consider it as you go online and you read the critiques of the time of that film. It is unanimously praised. People love the performances. People love, they loved it. My opinion, and I don't want to be controversial, is it is unwatchable. It is. Unwatchable? It is the worst. It is so fucking bad. I find it's it's tedious and it's made for TV level. And, and, And I think, I truly believe that that made for TV tinge about people praising the acting, I guess, for soap opera, for a soap opera, it's like that. That's the quality of acting. The quality of special effects is not there. I understand you want to do the hedge monsters, but I'm sorry, 1996, you could not accomplish it with that budget. It looks awful. The kid that they got to play Danny in that movie is so fucking bad. And I'm coming from a place from uh, as a person who, when I first watched The Shining, uh, I probably was in, in my teens. And I watched it because... This is what you did. Yeah. Everyone talked about The Shining. So I sat down. I remember it was going to be on one of the movie networks, like the probably movie picks because it was a, it's an oldie. So I sat down and I watched it and I didn't like it. And and I think that my problem with it was that at that time in my life, I wanted different things from horror. I wanted a serial killer. I wanted uh, boobs. I wanted huge body count. I wanted the things that an adolescent boy wants out of horror. As a grown individual can want out of horror as well. But that's what I was looking for. And it wasn't until I watched it again. I haven't seen this movie that many times. Mm -hmm. You absorb a lot of it through cultural osmosis. But I've... Oh, sure. You probably have the the Grady twins. Oh, yeah. Burnt into your memory. Oh, for sure. I have a framed picture of them signed on my wall. (laughs) So Well, then. (laughs) Right? So you you have that going for it. And I watched the movie again, and I loved it. Mm -hmm. And and then when I watched the TV movie right after that, I really loved it. Because it really made me appreciate how stellar everyone's performance was. Because for a while there, I was like a horror snob thing. The Shining is just an overrated picture, if you ask me. That was what I was, that's what I would say, having seen the movie once years ago and it being too mentally immature in my yeah, opinion. It didn't push the West buttons and you were coming to horror for different things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and now I watch it and yeah, fuck, it's so fucking good. It's so fucking good. 
And uh, and anyway, that's where I'm at with this. Yeah, and it, like I'm going to assume that everyone's listening has seen it. If you haven't seen it, I mean, really pause it and go see it for yourself. Um, not that like yes, we're going to spoil every single fucking beat of this film because it's uh, easy to spoil. But the internet has pretty much spoiled it for you. I know this. If you yeah. got two eyes and hands and have ever accessed a computer, yeah, you've, you you know what goes on in The Shining. You know all the the big scenes. Um, but it's those little insidious scenes that you love so much. The big wheels. A lot of people love the big wheels. Mm-hmm. It's that um, the audio tricks that are played in this film between quiet and loud and the use of the water phone and any of those harsh noises like the big wheels. For me, it's the handball, which yeah. is a scene that comes right after that. Um, some of the auditory bits in this are the little things that you take away and remember forever. Yeah, yeah. Elevator full of blood. What's creepy to me is the sounds that the snow makes when they're outside and just running through the snow. And you can just hear what that silence is. And that really lends you that feeling of isolation. That's the creepier thing for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, so there's no way we could spoil that if you haven't seen it. But I do highly recommend watching it because it is just a fucking wonderful film. Mm-hmm. Wonderfully put together film. A lot of Stephen King's criticisms were reneged to a certain extent because he's not backpedaled everyone's entitled to have multiple opinions on things especially something that is as close to him as the shining where he was just coming through alcoholism when he wrote it it's something very dear to him and then to have it made into a film that doesn't quite fit and it's not that it doesn't quite fit okay it doesn't fit at all like there's a, a lot of change the bulk of it it's very loosely based mm-hmm. on the shining mm-hmm. um but big things like shelly duvall's performance that he didn't like and a lot of people don't when I was younger, um, I didn't hate the film at all, mm-hmm. of course. I loved it, but I hated her. Yeah. And it took me a little bit more emotional and a personality maturity to understand that character. And I really, really like her performance. Mm-hmm. So I don't know where that sea change came. And the sea change has come and gone in Stephen King himself. In Dance Macabre, he considers it one of the greater films ever made. Mm-hmm. And he does enjoy it. But... I think that's only when he can take a step back entirely. And a lot of his comments are taken out of context. And maybe my saying that he has said it's one of the greater films ever made is taken out of context, too. Yeah, everyone's entitled to change their opinion on The Shining. If you watched it a long time ago and it wasn't for you, give it another chance. I did that with Suspiria over and over again. Still don't like it. But I keep trying, right? I'm glad that we were able to talk about this film for a Christmassy, wintry Mm-hmm. blast yeah, yeah yeah it seems it seems very appropriate but before all that we had post-mortem stuff right a little bit yeah there's nothing with the the last film that we did christmas evil which was mm-hmm. super fun and i did mention that i want to cover frozen i'll be covering <clears throat> the shining coming up in a couple weeks on typical books hmm. i pre-recorded a whole bunch of episodes so i'm going to get them out first and there's some wintry stuff in there, too. But then I'm going to talk about the rereading of The Shining. So there will be some typical books coming up. Uh, Thomas had asked a question on the Twitter about if we had to jettison our entire movie collection. But keep oh, three yeah. films. And you had a fucking meltdown. <laughs> I think I said, you, my children... Thomas, you're asking me to choose my children. I was having that vision of that classic parent dream, yeah, where where you uh, you have a swirling vortex in the sky and some ominous booming voice says, "Cast 
your least favorite child into the void to save the others. And then I just throw myself into the void because the sacrifice has to be me over my children. Thomas. Thomas. Well, I'd have to say Puss in Boots. <laughs> but I, was he not talking about horror in general, but just movies? I, I reread the tweet and I'll, I'll just double check it again. Okay, you're right. He did say horror, but I still say Puss in Boots. Okay. Farinelli. Okay. And Requiem for a Dream. <sighs> okay. Because I, I did think about this. If I had to jettison my horror movie collection, gang, I don't know if you've ever seen what it looks like. It's hundreds of movies. Hundreds and hundreds of movies. However, movies can be watched in a myriad of ways. And so if I were to forget the cost of the collection, forget the convenience of having the availability of it, because the reason why I don't like streaming services is because I don't trust them, because they take movies and they don't always show the best versions of movies and et cetera, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. However, there are particular films in my collection that mean a lot to me, not necessarily because of the film in question, but because of the moment when I got them or what they really mean to where I am in life right now, not to get too fucking poetic. But I, but it's not like one of these things, you look at all these movies and it's like, you can't even possibly remember where you got any of these. I'm like, incorrect. Pull off any movie in that shelf. I'll tell you exactly when I got it. I could probably tell you how much it costs. And, Roughly uh, the time of day and who was around, <clears throat> what you did after, what you ate for dinner that night. Yeah. Probably. Like, I get that. I get so that. three movies. Lucio Fulci's Zombie 2. That movie is very precious to me. Nice. Not only, um, not only because of the film itself and what it means to what I learned about myself from watching that film. If you want a long story about it, there's lots of interviews of me talking about it. But it also... It is uh, the Shriek Show version. It's a discontinued. It was very difficult to find. And so I got that. And uh, so the next one is uh, Vampire, the Criterion Collection version, which includes the script and the uh, the book uh, that it's based off of, Carmilla. It's a beautiful collection. Uh, I bought that movie when I could not afford to be buying movies like that. It was exceedingly expensive. And that so there's that and lastly a little bit of a left field pick my original copy of battle royale nice so so i have a copy of battle royale that is from korea that has english subtitles on it i probably have the same one before you could get it here yeah before you you could get it and and so that was kind of the cream of the crop in terms of when I was much younger and I got a horror DVD. I don't want to tell you how much I fucking paid for it. It was too much. Uh, I got it at a convention and I was very happy to have it because I, and I've shared, I've lent that movie out. Who would have guessed that all of a sudden the hunger games would become a big thing. And suddenly the ideas of, children, uh, teenagers killing each other in an arena type scenario became marketable. And then, oh, lo and behold, when the first Hunger Games film came out, what finally got released in region one? Brand new kick-ass versions of Battle Royale for a reasonable price, which I bought. But (laughs) uh, 
But um, but I still will never get rid of that copy of Battle, Battle Royale. No, it's like buying CDs of your albums so that you can yeah. preserve your vinyl, right? Right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. if it was horror, it would definitely be House of a Thousand Corpses, Halloween 2, and Pieces. And mm. most of them would be best on $4.99 um, garbage bin <laughs> discount crappy no extras DVDs. That's mm. my favorite. Uh, although I do have a very nice edition of Pieces, which is a recent edition because I used to only have it on VHS, which is really the best way to watch it if I'm going to be a huge elitist here. Yeah. Listen, man, there are some films where watching it off of VHS on a tube TV that barely works, that is kind of the only way to watch Wouldn't it. Wouldn't that be an amazing presentation for pieces? Oh, yeah. That's a- I, I missed it at the Mayfair when they had it, and they had, I'm, I'm positive they had the 35 mil, and I wish I could have seen it in its, like, native environment but. oh yeah adjusting your track and wheel and shit oh fuck that would have been so with the fucking awesome. tv with like the wood paneling on the side of it that's and how like i originally that. watched it yeah right but yeah i'm really pleased to have a, a decent copy of that but yeah that was a fun question scary for wes i get it when i saw his response i laughed my ass off so yeah <laughs> i had to bring that up but yeah it's really it there's no real uh you know tune into typical books stay tuned for panels of blood mm-hmm, yeah. and yeah, nothing really to say about Christmas Evil that we didn't say already. Yeah, yeah, I, I felt I was pretty on point with everything I wanted to say about Christmas Evil. Yeah. So, Jack. Jack, what do you say about old Jack? The guy must be so sick of that. Everyone just, like, fucking going up to that guy and, like, you talk like this. He's you like, talk like that anyway. So it's not like he's <laughs> even acting. It's, yeah, a, it's almost like making fun of him at that point, right? Like... Uh, I really, I really do enjoy this this character, and the thing that I think that spoke to me the most as a, as a kid um, was being told that I had some sort of psychic intuition all of my life. A lot of kids are told this, but I would genuinely creep people out. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely creep people out. The last time I really creeped somebody out, they were waiting for French fries uh, at like a food court or something, and they were like, "Oh, where's my fries? Where's my fries? Where's my fries?" And I was like, Shh, "Calm down. Three, two, one." Graham fries and then she, he was like how the fuck did you and I don't know I don't know I was just guessing right but that's yeah. what being psychic is all about is you're just guessing you just happen to be right I read this book when I was way too young to be reading I read a lot of Stephen King when I was way too young to be reading Steve, Stephen King and uh, I had been reading it over winter at my grandmother's for maybe Christmas or something that we had all bundled up and gone over to my grandmother's for and I remembered on the ride home that I'd forgotten my book and when we got home to the house, the the phone rang and it was my grandmother saying, you left your book here. And I said, well, can you set it, you know, somewhere safe? She's like, well, I just put it on the table. Let me see. Oh, it's not there anymore. Hang on. Where did you leave it last? Because she swore she had found it for me, put it on the table. And that's why she called. I turned around and it was sitting on my mother's kitchen table. Weird. I don't know if my parents were playing a funny trick, but it wouldn't be it would be too weird if my grandmother had suddenly thought to call. And where would the they book. have the like it, we, this is not the age of cell phones. No, like how there was, there's no way that she could have done that. Isn't know. that wild? Spooky. It was very spooky and it spooked us for years. Like it still was spooky to me. So um I, I definitely hung on to that copy of The Shining for a very long time because it was kind of special at that point. It could disappear at any moment, right? Who knows where it'll show up? It just like travels kitchen tables worldwide, popping up here and there. Um, but yeah, that was like a, a very creepy thing. But I got very scared reading this the first mm. time. 
Uh, and that feeling hasn't really gone away. When I reread it now as an adult, I've read it probably like six times, five or six times. And it's still creepy to me. Movie, same sort of feeling. I have this weird relationship. As I as I said earlier, that I when I first watched The Shining, I didn't like it. I feel as though I was set up for failure. It was. It's like if someone tries to tell you over and over again how funny something is, or how scary something is, how much you will like this, you, Wes. You will like this, and that that is creates a, a preconceived notion about why I might like something. With The Shining, people speak of it with a, a reverence. It, it occupies the same space to people as The Exorcist, as Silence of the Lambs, stuff that is elevated. This is. Highbrow, you stroke your beard and cluck your tongue. This is, the, and it defines it, 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 horror it, exactly. Yeah. When, when when the people when there's an Oscars presentation of horror, you get clips from those movies. You're not going to see pieces in the in the Oscar montage of horror. And you know, Alien. Th- these are the movies that people and the general population. And and that's not disparaging. I don't, I hate to say you know the the normies and the generals. I say that sometimes, but I don't mean it in a negative way. I just mean when people think about horror, it is the thing that you absorb the easiest through osmosis. And, and when you're not when you're talking to somebody who isn't a died in the wool horror fan, yeah, they, when they say, "Oh, I like horror movies. I watched The Shining once." Yeah, yeah. And oh, that was the scariest movie I ever saw. And you would see that. And and so many directors, and this is their fault, not necessarily societies, but. When you're marketing your film, and it's through the 90s and into the early aughts, especially the early aughts, I used to see this a lot on DVT commentaries and and featurettes and stuff like that. People would generally say, there hasn't been a scary movie since The Shining. The last scary movie was The Shining. And, and, And I bristle at that because that is... A ludicrously false statement. Yeah. The Shining is excellent, but you don't have to say everything else that came after The Shining is shit, except for conveniently your movie that you're just about to release. Hmm. But whatever, I'm not an idiot. But at the time, you just keep hearing that and hearing that and hearing that. And so when you sit down and you watch it, and I didn't get it. I, I don't see how this is scary. I don't see how this is interesting. I, I, I think Jack Nicholson... He's all right, but I I wasn't like a huge Jack Nicholson fan. But now, now when I watch this movie, I can't stop the grin on my face. I fucking love every scene. I am flabbergasted by uh, obviously the revolutionary steady cam work that happens in here. Like you were saying, the sound, everyone's performance, I think, is fucking knocking out of the park, including a child actor who is doing a fucking fantastic job. When was the job. last time we liked a kid actor? Oh, not fucking often. Oh, yeah. Not um, often. I mean, if anything, like Shelley Duvall's um, performance here reminds me a lot of the kid in The Babadook. Uh, and if you want to talk <laughs> about kid actors that get lambasted for their really fucking awkward and not good performance, yeah, uh, that kid, no, everyone sort of unilaterally agrees that yeah. that kid's fucking annoying. Yeah. It really stops the Babadook, in my estimation, from being a, a, a an excellent, excellent film. I like it, but yeah. it if you like, you know, I know it's got like Rotten Tomatoes, like hundred hundred percent. I'm just like, you're gonna have to knock thirty fucking marks off that just for that performance. It's distracting. It truly is, and Shelley Duvall uh, accomplishes that here as well. If you could have taken a little tiny Danny Lloyd and popped him into the Babadook, you would have had a very powerful film. Mm-hmm. But yeah, 
uh, Shelley Duvall really really took me out of it when I was when I first approached this film. Mm-hmm. To I don't know if the Babadook will ever be redeemed upon rewatching. But... Well, you have to see one day, right? Like, yeah. give it give it like like five years or something like that, and then go back to it. Well, no, I can grow into understanding Shelley Duvall's reactions. Mm. I can grow into understanding casting. I can grow into understanding what she went through as an actress on set mm. under the thumb of a very demanding director that that knew what he was doing to her knew full well what he was doing to her but Mm -hmm. um i can grow into understanding all those things i'll never grow into liking that kid ever (laughs) well that's fair that's fair. but yeah it is a really amazing performance all around from our friend scatman crothers you know (laughs) for a little that he's on the scene he's like a, a powerful performance even the fool that plays omen is fits his role and now omen that's how the book opens too the movie opens in the same note the book opens and i think that tricked some people they thought they were you know rubbing their little hands together going oh goody goody it's going to be everything page for page i can read along it's not so but it does start off in the same thing with jack torrance sitting in an office of mr allman taking the job Mm -hmm. basically and having this look on his face like I know I'm just glad handing and I'm going to say whatever it takes to get me this job because I really need this job. Mm. I've lost my other job. I'm going to be dry and I want to stay, you know, safe and sane and get some work done, which I haven't been doing because I was an alcoholic. So he's just saying whatever it takes and not liking this guy one bit. And you can tell subtly in the film. It's very clear in the book because it starts out with a vicious little prick, <laughs> which is what he's thinking about Allman at the time. You sort of get that from Jack mm. um, Nicholson's portrayal of Jack Torrance. There, there is a, a, a performance aspect beyond the fact that we're obviously watching actors in a scene act. This um, falsity about everything he's saying, it's so over the top. So, well... I'm just glad to be here. I can't wait to get started. I'll do whatever it takes. I Peace and quiet, well, that's exactly what I've been looking for. Which, you know, working in hospitality before, people do behave like that. And it's very oh, put yeah. on. It's very plastic. And it's scary to me. Because those yeah. are the sort of people you expect to fucking snap and chop their wife and child up into little bitty pieces. I think that this, uh, and we, I said this as we were going, I'm usually fairly quiet, but I've been very chatty today when we were watching the movie. I think it's because I feel so bad that I didn't like this initially. And now I feel like I'm trying to, like, I need to overcompensate. But I really do notice in these scenes, listen, it's Jack Nicholson's magnetic performance. And, and whatever you say about anything he's done afterwards or anything since, I mean, Jack Nicholson is fucking Jack Nicholson. He's a movie star. and And this is a guy that is very much doing exactly what he needs to to just pull everything out of this dialogue. If you take what he's saying, it's dull as toast, man. He's not saying anything particularly interesting. It's all in the face, the eyes, the eyebrows, his hand gestures, and his tone of voice. You don't believe for a second that he's not crazy already. Hotel, what are you talking about? He came that way. Yeah, like, right. But, but at the end of the day, even if this person seems performed, Allman and everyone else would just be like, so obviously this person will agree to stay in this murder mansion for five months with his family. Great. And he seems to be exceedingly qualified. I love that initially in the movie, and if you haven't read the book, you would wonder what makes him qualified. 
and and then of course you find out later, you know, pumping gas and shoveling laneway, he would probably do odd trade work in order to compensate for his um, income because of the fact that you know he's not a, a working writer. He seems to be writing something, and that's how he's identifying himself. But I don't. Has he sold books before, or is this like his first thing? Is he, that a, he'd been a playwright in the, uh, okay. in the book, so he was working on more plays and thinking of writing another novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say he, I wouldn't call him a failed writer yet because you have to. He's still, yeah, he's fail, still, he's still right? getting there, right? So that yeah. was that's the vibe that you get from the film, and you can see that okay, I was a teacher, and now I got these Joe jobs, and I'm not satisfied. And, and he was let go from teaching. The book makes a very big thing of it, and it's very subtle in the film where you sort of get the gist that yeah. like. The drinking had, oh, yeah. had really oh, yeah. deteriorated a lot more in his life than they're even letting on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why he's not working. Mm-hmm. But then you wonder, like, later on in the film when we both caught it, who's lying here? Because Wendy says he hasn't been drinking for three years. And Jack maintains he hasn't been drinking for five months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, five miserable months on the wagon and the irreparable damage it has caused. Where... We're learning at the very beginning that the drinking not only had something to do with him not being a teacher anymore, but, I mean, there's not a lot of very hectic, very demanding jobs you can do while you're a a fucking blithering alcoholic. But he also had a threat to his family life when he hurt Danny. He dislocated his arm, pulling him away from some papers he had been marking. So all around the same time, his life seemed to be falling apart. And that was three years previous. Well, they'd moved into Denver only like five months previous. Mm -hmm. So whatever it was, he might have been moving from job to job. But he's definitely done other things to supplement his income. Yeah. I think that the five-month drinking mark is likely accurate. Oh, yeah. I think that when Wendy is explaining to this care worker, I think she's a, a nurse or somebody. Yeah, like a doctor. A doctor making a house call. I think that... She is telling the story about what happened to Danny in a, in such a way as to not – she knows how it will sound regardless. Mm-hmm. So she is being very careful about what words she's choosing. And so the the moral of the story being he had been drinking and this had happened. But after it happened, he said, Wendy, I'm never touching another drop. And so, and since then, uh, he hasn't. That to me is probably the only. And of course, I love the shot back to this doctor who's just deadpanning, no dialogue, no reaction, just, uh huh. That's the, yeah. that's the nonverbal look she's giving. But, and, and Wendy is, is trying to just the best possible spin. He never drank again. I call bullshit. Yeah, I think right. that he Especially probably, if this was three years ago. Yeah, he continued to drink. And then five months ago, he cut off drinking entirely because his life was in shambles. So, it, and, and it, would be a, it would be a better story mm-hmm. if him accidentally harming his son was what made him never drink again. I have a sneaking suspicion it was not good enough. And, and so it would have taken him wanting to focus on his life and career more than his family. Because let me tell you something. <laughs> Jack Torrance does not seem like he likes his family at all. Even when they're driving up to the hotel, everything that his wife says to him, he just has, well, 
heard it on the television. Like he has this way of he's talking. Very, he's judging in a, a very subtle, unspoken way. Maybe it's just me that's inferring that he's judging her fucking parenting skills every fucking turn. But do we ever see him interact with Danny? Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah, he wants he not does, until everyone's stressed out and and freaking out and yeah. and very uncomfortable living up there, and he Danny's having fucking night terrors. Yeah, and he sits and he sits Danny down like a fucking psycho Santa Claus, like he's gonna wring his neck at any fucking moment. Oh yeah, and one of Danny's first questions is, "Are you gonna hurt me and mom?" Yeah, I know that's good. That's good. To that's ask the only time we really see them interact with father and son. Yeah, and it is not a fucking normal reaction no, or and interaction that's what's whatsoever. Through the fucking movie. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So he's not warm to him ever. He's not overcompensating. This is a person who feels like his family has taken his life away from him. And, and now he has to do things he doesn't want to do to take care of this family that he likely never wanted or at least doesn't want anymore. So that's the Jack that's packed into a Volkswagen bug heading up a mountainside <laughs> to trap himself in fucking murder mansion, as you so eloquently put it, for five fucking months. Along with him is our pal Danny, who we've been introduced to a pretty, pretty normal like kid. I don't know. He's like this high, but this is radio so you can't tell uh i don't know how old he's supposed to be five six maybe older i don't know because he can talk straight he can talk straight it's hard to say he's younger than 10 oh for sure but i I, but it's hard to really say seven let's say seven that's a guess that's a good one um i wonder how old he's supposed to be now but anyway um (laughs) people might often wonder how old the grady twins are supposed to be but they're not twins at all they're eight and ten (laughs) Mm -hmm. there you go Mm -hmm. they just dress alike now was it was it twins in the book Grady did slaughter two daughters and his mm. wife, mm. but there was other ghosts in that building. Oh, yeah. Now, he has an imaginary friend named Tony. Tony is a little boy that lives in his mouth, and he hides in his stomach because if you look in his mouth, you won't see Tony. Tony also talks through his finger, which Tony's a, a little bit different in the book, but he does exist in the book. I really like the talking with the finger. And there's been times when my father, as a child, The Shining was such a story ingrained in my family day-to-day goings-on and quoted very heavily, much like the people quote Simpsons today, (laughs) that my dad would be watching TV and my mom would be like, John this, John that, you want me to make you tea or whatever? And he'd like put his finger up and say, Johnny's not here, Mrs. Torrance. And she'd laugh (laughs) and they'd, you know... Go about their day. (laughs) Constant shining references. Here's Johnny worked very well in my household because my father's name is John. He Mm -hmm. is also a little crazy, often wielded an axe, and uh, people called him Jack. Well, there you go. I like that it's deeply ingrained in your family history. Yeah, it really truly is. Uh, So the whole... The way that Tony is, is handled in this is my favorite iteration of Tony. Mm-hmm. I like the little finger. I like the creepy little voice. Mm-hmm. I often mimic it. And we're introduced to Tony being a problem, though, because mm-hmm. Tony not only is his imaginary friend, which usually isn't problematic and kids grow out of it. Um, Tony does tell him things he's not supposed to tell other people, mm-hmm. which is somewhat problematic because you could say that it has markers of... Uh, some sort of abnormal psychology. He has some mm-hmm. sort of personality disorder. Mm-hmm. But then beyond that, he has some sort of seizures linked to very deep interactions with Tony. So when he's really having a good talk with Tony, when Tony's showing him pictures, like mm-hmm. pictures in a book, uh, he can space out and he can like he has a have a seizure. Yeah. So yeah, that's the kid that they're bringing up to the Overlook. Yeah, and especially just as uh, they're about to go, he has an episode, mm-hmm. and then next thing you know, they're just up in the car because, I mean, 
episode be damned, they're going up to that fucking place. He signed a contract, Lydia. His responsibilities. Did yeah. you ever think about his responsibilities? Did you ever have one single thought? <laughs> Isn't it fun? This is the this is the episode now. So um, you, you can't quote Wendy because you just be like, I think we should take her to a doctor. <laughs> oh, I'm just very confused. Exactly. So you can't. I'm so sorry, Shelley Duvall. We can't quote. Your Wendy lines. No, it's 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 a lot harder to do. I just I just don't have the chops to do her voice. I think when you, one of the interesting things about this movie, we talked about this a little bit before we went about what how Stanley Kubrick now very famously treated her. And there's the the thirty minute uh, featurette on the DVD that we watched. No, Vivian Kubrick has at the time seventeen year old daughter. Yeah, and you can see even those interactions, the shit that they chose to film. The, even those interactions, you can see the the tension. Oh, you can feel it. Or the release of it. You see Scott Man Crothers have an emotional breakdown where he begins crying upon talking about working with Danny. And just how emotional and how, how much he loved working with these people and what good people they were. Mm-hmm. And it just sounds like there's so much you're not telling us, sir. But Shelley yeah. Duvall, so much she's not telling us right there because she's talking about how she was pushed mm-hmm. and how... He knew what he was getting out of her, and it was for the best. Yeah. Talking about how Kubrick was, when you're in pain, you you hate and resent the, the, the source of that pain. And so I resented him at the time, but now I see. And I think he's a good person, and I like him. And you just think, wow, I don't... Especially what we learn much later in life, right? You, you know, like what ended up happening to her... Uh, how she was exploited in that interview from, I think, last year or something uh, along those lines. It, it, it just really makes everything so much more heartbreaking. The way movies were released back then, I mean, 1980, you don't even have a, a, a direct-to-market. You don't have, like, a fucking uh, video scene, right? It's just, it comes out in theaters. And what you see on screen is what you get. And you can wait till the credits and then you see all those names if you remember any of them and then you walk out the door and then that was it. What a great movie. You don't see what it took to make all of that. You don't see what working with Stanley Kubrick, famous 127 takes on a Shelley Duvall scene. That that has become movie legend. Her passing out on set due to exhaustion mm-hmm. thanks to maybe not even that fucking scene you know yeah just just trying to pull everything out the 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 film that they created together through all that madness and pain is a masterpiece is it worth it though i don't know i'm not i can't i can't say for is it worth it when you look at it in the context of people going to the theater mowing down on popcorn barely paying attention and leaving going shrug that was okay yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean now, no, now, be, now, thanks to DVDs and Blu-rays and and the online community, movies like this can be seen again and again and again, and, and uh, merchandise can be made, and there's all of this reverence and appreciation for everyone's performance, and everyone loves these people, and Stanley Kubrick was a genius, and oh and, god, and, you got people like the gentleman who made that documentary type film, uh, Room Two Three Seven, based on how The Shining is um, an admission that Kubrick video and directed the fucking moon landing or whatever like which is obviously a fucking lunatic it's, it's insane this this film there, there's an interesting uh quote that i i learned i'm a bit of a, a shakespeare fan as most people know and and so the the quote that i always say uh that i've always remembered is there has been written 
account of every single page of dialogue and screen direction of Hamlet. Everyone has talked and psychoanalyzed and and torn apart every page of Hamlet. The Shining is the one movie that I can point to that I can definitively say it it has been analyzed every fucking frame of this movie. And you know that because go to YouTube and watch fan theories yeah. about yeah. what this thing is. I have seen some crazy compelling stuff that talks about how the movie shifts between Jack Torrance's writing a story about, and that's the movie that you're watching. It's not happening. And and they say, look at how he's dressed here. Look at how the set's decorated here. The same set decorated differently. Now we're in the oh, book. Oh, you can go fan like, theory like that. And that begins when he has that scrapbook on the table because the scrapbook is not used as a device in the film. It's just simply appears yeah. on the table. He doesn't even mention until later when he says he recognizes Grady from newspaper clippings, mm-hmm. which is crazy because it's not even the same Grady because it was Charlie Grady that Alman mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, not the Grady that he meets later on, which mm-hmm. is just kind of strange. But that scrapbook being there, that fan theory holds water in my mind. Yeah. As a fan theory. But there's hundreds of thousands of hours of fan theory on video in yeah. writing. There's- don't don't go and don't try to, if you watch The Shining and then don't get it, Googling it will not help. Like, not no, fucking what would help probably help is read the book. Yes. Yeah, I definitely. Concur. Read the book or watch The Making Of. Mm-hmm. That would be helpful. Anything else is can just be cuckoo, loco, batshit, crazy fan S- theory. S- Stanley Kubrick was a notorious director for surrealism. He was a notorious director for picking and choosing what he wanted to, to have in The Shining. The Shining is a pastiche of the book. And you can see he just cherry-picked things. That were visually interesting to him. Probably the things that he gleaned, the things that he read the book and then sat back and the things that really stuck in his head mm-hmm. and things that wouldn't translate. We understand that now. At the time, people probably didn't and just accepted it a little more at face mm-hmm. value, albeit being feeling ripped off. There is a scene I feel ripped off not having. Mm-hmm. I feel ripped off not having the, the very explosive ending to the book, which mm-hmm. is sort of like the opposite sort of thing. Anyone mm-hmm. that has seen The Shining to its uh, conclusion knows it simply ends with a frozen man. Yes. Period. And the photo. The photo, The yeah. very infamous photo. The, the, end, the book, it does end very, very differently mm-hmm. in some respects. Mm-hmm. But um, the... Shelley Duvall being tormented, tormented to like the breaking point on this film, didn't send people out of the theater. People didn't know that going in. People didn't know that really for years. Mm -hmm. It probably was, you know, a few scattered interviews in like Variety magazine here and there. Uh, It probably took about 10 years for that to become public knowledge. Now it's known to people who haven't even seen the film or read the book know what Shelley Duvall had underwent. It reminds me a lot of what Christian Bale, and this is recent to me because I had only been privy to this wonderful bit of audio, (laughs) Christian Bale flipping shit, as it were, on a DP on the set of Terminator Salvation. Salvation, Salvation, yeah. Yeah, we had discussed this earlier. That's how I know all of this, but because I I couldn't remember what fucking film it was on or anything. Mm -hmm. But I did hear the audio of him losing his fucking shit on this DP. And I don't blame him. And I don't blame him at all. I don't think he should have been urged to apologize for that. Because shit fucking happens. I walked into a green room and flipped shit, as it were. I'm making 
inverted quotes with my fingers here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't apologize. People understood. It's, you know, you get tense when you're under the sort of pressure that you're on. That mm-hmm. sort of pressure is what was building up, I'm sure, in the set of The Fucking Shining. Mm-hmm. Let alone them being, you know, a lot of it was done in a studio, but a lot of it was shot on, like in a secluded place. And you're trapped with these people. Cabin Fever does set in on a film set. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know, man. It would have been very, very intense. They're lucky for the sake of this production and all of their reputations that those stories didn't seep out until years later, where poor Christian Bale had to deal with that while still on set. We live in a a day and age where things can be recorded very easily, uh, visually, auditorily. And so we hear Christian Bale like, good for you, good for you, just losing his fucking mind. And it's hilarious to me. But also, I would wonder what I would be, how I would react in those situations. I'm a pretty uh, laid back guy, except there is a version of me that my coworkers cutely call stressy Wessy. And when I'm under the gun, I, I, the look on Lydia's face when I said that, it was the first time she's ever heard that before. Stressy Wessy. Stressy Wessy. There's a version of me that can get that irritable and that explosive when things are not moving at the speed and rate that I need them to because I'm a fucking child sometimes. And later I'll come back and I will apologize because I always feel bad about losing my temper, but I can definitely understand. Back in the day, you just say, "What? this is a very intense actor or this is a very intense director. He has a very clear vision. He was suffering from dehydration. This is all things that your uh, PR people will say to the public and to give you an idea so when it comes to Hollywood and movie making, you really got to read between the lines. Now, of course, as actors and directors and writers and, and everyone gets older and they don't really worry about their careers anymore, more of these stories get out and it be and it paints an even more interesting picture. But you can't take away from the fact that The Shining is The Shining, maybe because of all of that, maybe because of all the stress and the torment. I still am not here to say it was worth it. Because like I said, you you hear the stories and you see that interview with Shelley Duvall uh, and I just, well, I didn't watch all of it because it was like so... It felt exploitative. It was very exploitative and I just couldn't. I, I watched a, like a couple of clips from it and and uh, and I was just, I can't watch this. This is just awful. Like I, I, I don't, they should have turned those cameras off. Anyways, that's neither here nor there, but it just was sad to me and it really, it taints films like this to me in a in a sense because at the end of the day it's a fucking movie for entertainment and in the grand scheme of things it's disposable entertainment as much as someone might love something like this and the toll that creating art can take on people you can't get back and so like it's just like this weird place now sometimes knowing too much is kind of frustrating ignorance is bliss as they say Mm-hmm. But that that being said, pretending things don't exist, and I say this all the time, doesn't make those things go away. No, unless you're Danny and you're <laughs> in room 237 yourself. Now, room 237. Danny has um, The Shining. And he does. I'm not going to go into a big, long explanation of, of The Shining because it's anyone that's seen The Simpsons has an idea of what it is. It's psychic it's, premonition. Yeah. Clairvoyance. And one thing that is missing um, 
aside from the way that, that it ends, I, the first time I watched this, I was quite disappointed that they don't have the presidential suite because that's one of the first times we like we have an idea of what of what Danny's um, psychic thing can do. It can tell him what his mom's making for lunch. It can tell him when his dad's on his way home. It can tell him little tiny psychic things. In this uh, building, he meets Dick Halloran, the cook, who's going to be taken off for the winter like everybody else in the building. But he gets to show them around the kitchen and the huge industrial kitchen that they have oh, at their yeah. disposal. All the food in the pantry. That's my favorite part. Yes, it is. Looking at all the food. All the food in the freezer. Mm-hmm. 20 lamb. Do you like lamb, Doc? No. <laughs> well, how'd you know we call them Doc? Well... I must have heard you say it. I got the shinin. <laughs> you got the shinin. I, I I really I really like that they got jazz from Transformers to uh, <laughs> to do this. It's it's quite surreal to uh, to see the face behind the robot that I grew up on. But you know, it's really really. I love that performance. I love that conversation. Well, and- he's explaining everything in the pantry. He asks Danny if he'd like some ice cream mm-hmm. in his mind. In his mind, that's his test. That's his test. He gets a he gets a sense that. Danny might have the shine. And I love this folksy way that he talks about it. It, it really it really seems... Uh, it's very Stephen King with his mystical Negroes. Yeah, he does like... <laughs> I'm not going to blame him. You know what? It's become a trope, yes. But it's by and large become a trope because of him. Mm-hmm. Because of him not... You know, not writing only straight white males. Mm-hmm. He's written a gamut of different types of people. And that just happens to be one of his favorites. So he's sort of created, like, I do squarely blame Stephen King for having, like, Grandma Moses types, you know? Yeah, yeah. He, so Dick Halloran's just filling that. There's a direct line between Bagger Vance and uh, <laughs> and uh, Stephen King, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think that, I, I, I think he's probably attempting to tap into this just again forgotten knowledge or for a forgotten understanding and when he's talking about slaves being brought into the united states and then keeping a lot of their culture but having to be low-key about it and it was stuff that was past word of mouth and you know there's still places that, that understand these things in the in the south and 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 all this kind of stuff and so you had people that had to like were forced to work the lands as slaves and so still maintained their roots whereas white society forgot all about it and got all distracted and everything so now the things that became very important are communication uh not only communication with the shining but communication mm-hmm. about things like that within a family context so family yeah. just naturally became a lot closer yeah and so, and especially with this conversation he 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 discovered it from his grandmother which they talked openly about it and one of his first questions is does anyone know that tony talks mm-hmm. to you um, and that his mom and dad know and that he's not supposed to talk about it. His mom and dad don't want him to talk about Tony. Tony doesn't want him to talk. Like, no, Danny is like really in this tug of war with The Shining because he has his own power coming, like manifesting as Tony, who's almost intrinsically evil because of the way he's controlling of Danny and his parents further controlling because they don't want to ha- be the parents of a crazy son, I guess. So they tell him to not tell people. Like, so poor Danny's being really squashed with this, where Dick had the opposite experience mm-hmm. with his grandmother, and probably his parents knew about their little ability as well. It probably wasn't a secret thing. Secret from normies like you or me. If we met Dick, he wouldn't be like, do you shine? Do you shine? <laughs> yeah, I know. He'd yeah. probably be able to sense it. it. It is interesting that you bring that up about Danny's isolation. He's got no friends his own age. Mm-hmm. And Lord knows that it's not entirely 
certain how much schooling he even has. I mean, we know for five fucking months he's not going to any school. He's mm-hmm. not. Be, he's just watching cartoons and eating peanut butter and jam sandwiches. That's and all. He, he was pulled out of uh, preschool too because mm-hmm. of his dislocated shoulder, which was apparently three years ago. So how long has he been pulled out of fucking school for? Yeah, I mean, maybe he's homeschooled. I'm not exactly. And sure. And they just moved. So yeah. if they just moved at the beginning of the season. He wouldn't have been at school all summer. It's October, so that one month he probably wasn't in school. So mm-hmm. he probably wasn't even registered if they're going to take off to the wilds until fucking May. Yeah, I know. So he's really missing out on some early childhood development stuff, especially interacting with children his own age. And yeah. so it, you wouldn't blame a kid for li- living in his head. Tony does operate as an evil entity in a lot of respects. You can't really put a finger on it if if he is... Protecting Danny, protecting himself, itself, leave it gender neutral because who knows. Or if it's the influence of the house because the images don't get really bad until the Overlook is an idea, let alone when they get to the Overlook. mm -hmm. Uh, In the book, one of the first really horrific things he sees, uh, aside from little things like getting a a little bit too tuned in to what the adults are thinking of one another in their pants and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But he, uh, they go into the presidential suite and everyone's Mm -hmm. like, oh, what a lovely room. It's so beautiful. It's sort of like the the vision of the gold room in this. Like it's a, it's a room that is so grand and Mm -hmm. has a lot of history. And Danny is seeing it painted with fucking blood and doesn't understand why no one else sees it, but decides just zip lip. So, uh, like not to let the adults know what he's seeing because Tony's always told him not to tell the people what he sees. So he's really between rock and a hard place standing in this room that's painted with fucking blood. That would have been a really brilliant introduction to how horrible The Shining is. Like The Shine, mm-hmm. actually. Um, instead, here we get a warning to stay away from room 237 because Danny seems to know Tony has let him on that there's something horrible in that room. And he meets the Grady sisters in the hallway. Mm-hmm. And we get some thing painted with blood. Absolutely. The the the, the images that that uh, Kubrick decides to show in this are can really I suppose incorrectly to to the lay person indicate that the primary tragedy in this hotel that you should probably concern yourself with is the fact that Grady killed his family and he was one of the original uh, caretakers. Now, if you read the book, which I admittedly have not, but again, you absorb a lot through osmosis. And of course, when you watch things and you say, well, what is that about? What's that about? What's that about? And you go and look it up. And so you realize that Kubrick picked other stories to show images of so you understand that the Grady murder is indicative of a much larger problem that has been going on in front of this place. They'll throw out things like ancient Indian burial ground and and, and repelling attacks from natives. They will show you that uh, levels of debauchery, levels of murder, all of these things. And that's just, again, what he's chosen to include in this film which has a very wide reach. And the book, that to my understanding, has a lot more to really flesh out this place as just a bucket of nightmares that that seems to... Uh, like, I'm not even going to say like corrupt people. It's not like Legend of Hell House, but it kind of has that same sort of dark presence that seems to manifest every dark desire, be it murder or sex or drugs. 
and and of course a place of decadence. This was at the height of its popularity. This is 1980, and people go to this hotel. But who goes to this hotel? Rich people. Rich people go to this hotel. Furries. Furries. Very very big furries. The 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 dog or the bear in the film, but it's a dog in the book. That is one of those things. With the first time I ever saw this movie, I just I was like, what is this? I, I see quite a few people comment about that or think that's where they just lose it because they don't understand this anymore when Shelley is actually privy to what's going on behind the scenes ghost wise mm-hmm. in this, in this mm-hmm. hotel. Um, and I don't know. I didn't find that untoward. It has no context. Great. Whatever. That's, that's I mean, my... the 4th of July party, which we kept saying to ourselves as a New Year's Eve party. I and kept... I referred to it as a New Year's party. Yeah. But there would have been no New Year's party in that building ever. So Yeah, and I was like, oh, Lydia's so clever. I was like, it's it's our first episode after New Year's, and we got one that has New Year's in it. I like it. It's it's great. She's so good at finding things that's not just New Year's evil. I was half thinking that too, though, but then it wasn't until the end that we're like, oh, yeah. It's, it's fucking July 4th. And, and you pointed out quite correctly, the fucking hotel is closed for New Year's because that's why Jack Torrance and his family are there. Every year, it becomes impassable. Yeah. Silliness. Silliness. Well. We never include into that till the very end. But that song they're playing just kind of reminds me of a old Lang sign. So it does sound like something that you'd play around midnight on New Year's. I knew the place was too classy for New Year's. So the, the interesting thing about this film is how it expertly handles isolation. And they do this in a lot of ways, mostly with sound. Mostly with the steady cam work that, for at the time, as I was saying, was revolutionary. People hadn't seen steady cam work like that. The rigs that they created for this film are breathtaking. And that's where you get following Danny on his big wheel going through the sound, the, the carpet to the hard floor to the carpet. Again, the way that they follow movement somehow makes it seem so steady. It's, it's really, really uh, remarkable. And that helps. Uh, make the same place feel very empty. And so when you do see things that is not a family of three living in this hotel, i.e. the Grady twins, you get very startled by seeing something that is not really there that shouldn't be there. We have some context because we know that Dick had told Danny about just like pictures in a book. And again, I love this folksy way that he describes it because it's also very digestible to a child and us, the audience, with our child brains that can't handle things that are a little bit too complicated. It creates this, with Dick's explanation, it is one of my favorite techniques in writing, which is talk about the room, but don't really talk about the room. You, It is so effective to me to say, what's in this room? Nothing's in this room. And you stay out of that room because you got no business in that room. I joke about the forbidden closet of mystery, but at the same time, the second you go past that door as Danny and you see from his little boy perspective, that big old door, man, has a door never looked more fucking intimidating because that's how Danny would see it. He's little. Look at the size of this fucking door. And then you go into this room. What do you have? Red room. Red room. Red room. You have over there. You have a, you have a, a tacky, teal seashell purple drapes. Bur- purple drapes. You have this fucking nineteen eighties nightmare of a, a decoration mistake, and it's just a room. It's just a room. 
There's nothing in the room. There is. But when we first enter this room, it's terrifying. And when we know something's in that room, we see Danny. His neck is, he looks like he's been throttled. He tried to get away. He ripped his shirt in the process. We don't know what's in it. And No, we have no idea. All we know is the sounds of the water phone. We know the look on Danny's face. Mm-hmm. We know the setup to that of, are you afraid of 237? And Dick being very uncomfortable. Me like, oh, oh, no, no, no. What do you mean? No, no, no. There's nothing scary in there. You just never go in there. Yeah. And, right? and, 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 and to me, it is so much better than a flat out explanation some dark things happened in that room. You could have went that way. You could have decided to write the scene that way. They don't, and they and it's so much better because it's allowing my imagination to put my biggest fears on that. What's in that room? And 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 even though you know you watch like a, a movie like fourteen oh eight and just like it's an evil fucking room, you can. That's more of a funny line. It doesn't make me afraid of the room. But this, like saying as little as possible, but that you shouldn't go in there. And a combination of child curiosity, a, 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 an evil pull, supernatural means the door is open. Holy fuck. And then when Jack finally goes in there. We get massive payoff because we've already had this huge setup. We have this don't show the monster kind mm-hmm, of monster mm-hmm. that's off stage beheading, as mm-hmm. if you will. And then we do get to see it in all of her glory because it was her. A very Um, famous scene in this movie. At this point, Jack's done two things that make Shelley right away assume that he has been the one to leave marks on Danny. Not some mysterious woman Mm -hmm. in a a room that he shouldn't have been in, even though he tells her that's what happened. She still does accuse him right away. Doesn't ask Danny what happened right away. Accuses Jack, even though... She was with him moments before, and he was having a nightmare. His nightmare scares the hell out of her, I think, not only because of the context of the nightmare. Yeah. But walking into a room, waking someone from a night terror who is screaming in their sleep, and not just making little little chuffy pup noises while they're dreaming, screaming, a grown man screaming in his sleep, and then she wakes him from that. He continues to scream. He continues to panic. That's it's fucking t- it's night terror screams it's fucking intimidating it's itself. very good very good acting here to have woken my sister from a dream like this a long time ago when she was a teenager and the way she looked at me was she was filled with terror and i felt badly feeling like i was the cause of this even though i know i wasn't she was still dreaming sort of uh with her eyes open but my God. So he acts this very well. She just finds him in that state. And then he regales her with tales of his wonderful dream that had sent him into a screaming frenzy of not only did he kill Danny and Wendy with an axe, he chopped them up into little tiny pieces. Mm-hmm. I like this scene a lot because it is the most normal that Jack Torrance ever appears to me. It's true. It, it, he is so confused. He seems... To genuinely, he's delivering his lines with an authenticity. I'm not. That is not to say that everything else seems performed, but it, everything else seems like he's constantly lying, or that he's constantly fed up. That Wendy's. I mean, for fuck's sake, we've already had the scenes about like if you hear me. Yeah, minutes ago, that was the other thing that like moments before it seems it feels to us, and it was probably days before. He was like losing his mind on her for walking into the room and. Mm-hmm. 
being a writer or somebody who likes quiet, just generally, I kind of can relate. I was going to say, I was like, this is probably your favorite scene in the whole fucking movie. This Sec- is- no, it's not. It's my second favorite scene. <laughs> my ultra favorite scene is when she's reading all oh, work and no play makes Jack a dull boy over yeah. and over. And she's going through the manuscript and the water phone music is just freaking us out. And we are getting her sheer dread of, oh, my God, he has absolutely lost his mind and probably will chop us up into little tiny pieces because he's not writing a book. He's lost it entirely. And she's flipping through this, has already been told not to be in this room, has already seen him having terrors at this desk and this is what he's writing and he comes up behind her and says how do you like it and (laughs) her reaction of bumbling the bat and screaming was like Mm -hmm. great because that's kind of the reaction any horror author wants when you say how do you like it and somebody screams in sheer terror from your presence but he has you know told her when i'm in here and you hear the typewriter and then he demonstrates the sound of a typewriter and says i don't give a fuck what i'm doing you stay the fuck out of here and how about you start now by getting the fuck out and like he does it with all that jack nicholson intensity that many people try to um imitate but never quite accomplish no one does it no one does it quite like him he delivers those lines that he's chewing the scenery he is dialed up to 11 but somehow it works Mm -hmm. whereas a lot of other people i mean like you know nick cage could do that fucking as much as people would like to think that he could he can't and and uh, any other actor really but it, it's it's fucking crazy and all of these intensities it, it hits you on a level of of if you ever had like a scary parent if you had out of a parent that you thought might fucking slap you or or just if you were ever dealing with anyone that was alcoholic or mentally unstable or someone who had bursts of violence like this just rage problems or when my dad worked shift work and my mom had me go into the bedroom to retrieve something and it was much like a scene in this film where danny wants to go in and get his fire truck and his dad's being you know really unsettled and he's apparently sleeping and wendy sends him in there and right away i was like oh god this is like that time when i was about four years old and i was sent in there to get socks or something and yeah. uh, my dad was on shift work and i woke him up and the look on his face was so enraged and i was like oh god i don't know if he's gonna kill me oh, what are you gonna like, do what are you gonna do? what are you gonna do yeah, yeah. it's crazy i remember when i was uh, just speaking of the night terror thing and then this reminded me of it when i was a kid i had a cousin dawn who's my second cousin he was an old he, older like my dad's age cousin that type yeah. of thing so second cousin i think uh, he uh, was a bit of a drinker and also he smoked. And so he was staying over one night and I stayed up a little bit later. I was probably like 13, 14 years old or some shit like that. And my dad had asked me before my dad went to bed. He said, your cousin Don is sleeping on the couch. Can you make sure when you're going to bed that he does not have a lit cigarette going on while he's asleep because I don't want him to burn down the fucking house. Yeah. One thing that I was aware of but I had never seen was that my cousin Don had night terrors. Oh. So as I was going to bed, I leaned over top to see if he was smoking. I did not see any glowing embers. And just as I leaned over his face like from the reverse, like I'm going to Spider-Man kiss him. He fucking let out a screech that, and my blood ran cold. Oh, wow. And I just, I'm getting the fuck out of here. I'm, I knew what was happening because I had, I had already known that, yeah, yeah, your cousin Don has uh, night terrors. 
and no one knew. But you'd never seen it. I'd never in real seen life. it. Yeah. I'd never seen it in my life. And just to be that close to it's pitch black in the fucking room too. And he just lets out this scream that I couldn't. I would try to duplicate it, but it would ruin the mic and, and the show. But it was fucking blood curdling. It was awful. It was the worst fucking sound I've ever heard. So that's what. That's what. That's the state that Wendy is in. So now I think that I understand a lot of what adult reactions are to other people's actions. Uh, she's gone through her husband losing jobs, being an alcoholic, hurting their son, and trying to reconcile all of that. Her son having these these problems with this imaginary friend, and probably gone to child psychologist. That's probably what that woman was at the beginning, because uh, she didn't strike me as a lab coat doctor. Yeah, yeah, me either. Yeah, yeah a little more of a psychologist, I think, or like you said, a caseworker, maybe, but probably a doctor of some sort this isolation and being snowed in having no communication having somebody maybe be in the hotel but having jack check it out but not there's there isn't a lady in the hotel a naked lady in the tub that strangled danny that lady doesn't exist Mm -hmm. but she's not sure she's pretty like she's she's got to believe that her husband didn't do it because she was with him when he was having this horrific night terror and mm-hmm. has been yelling at her and is acting like he's been drinking. He's he's exhibiting behaviors of somebody like sleeping in all of the time, staying out wherever late at night, yeah. uh, not really writing now. So you can I can better wrap my head around the place that she's in mm-hmm. when she ultimately grabs a baseball bat. Because she has a baseball bat at first. Because Danny ends up with marks on his neck. She goes to Jack, accuses him at first of strangling mm-hmm. Danny, but then sends him to room 237 to investigate because Danny has said there's somebody else in the hotel with him. Mm-hmm. That's when she has the baseball bat because mm-hmm. she thinks there's somebody in the fucking hotel. So, Are you out of your fucking mind? Well, no, but I, <laughs> I'm just confused. You know, like you can't even imitate Wendy, but... Uh, he does acquiesce to set their minds at ease, probably mm-hmm. partially. And it's his fucking job as the caretaker, right? It's not inconceivable that there is a fourth person in this house. It's not inconceivable. This place is fucking massive. It is massive. They don't even traverse all of the floors. Danny's probably the person that does most of the tours because he takes his big wheels around and sees more of the building, even the wings that are shut down because they heat the wings in turn. He doesn't, like, inspect everything. They haven't heard a noise, so there'd be no reason to inspect these rooms. Very plausible that there was a a, a, a guest, uh, a prostitute, a maid, a drunk person, um, a, a derelict. Yeah, someone just squatting. Like, it could be someone who, who knows that the place is going to be abandoned, and it's just like, there's a thousand rooms here. I could just par- I could park in any one of these rooms and they'll never find me. Yeah, I could sneak down to the pantry between this hour and this hour. They'll never know that yeah. I'm stealing food like a mouse and <laughs> go live on this other wing that they'll never come to. Especially if you get used to the heating rotation, you could probably just float from wing to wing and stay heated and warm and fed and they would never know you're there. But this is a, a girl who was um, like a... I'm an angry sick person in a tub of some sort and I'm positing like okay so it's a somebody who had met some sort of cruel intention and had been incapacitated for a month because they'd been there over a month now and so Danny when Danny approaches her she would have attacked but that's all made up stuff because mm-hmm. that's not what happened mm-hmm. does this girl exist 
She probably did at one point. She definitely did at one point. One of the many ghosts of the Overlook come to life. He's been interacting with one already at the bar in the gold room. Lloyd. Old Lloyd. I like you, Lloyd. I've always liked you. It's really interesting. This is this is the, the... So, the first time that Jack interacts with Lloyd, it's one of my favorite scenes in this movie because I love how warm he is to the booze fairy. <laughs> the booze fairy. Oh, yeah. You know, he he... he Acts like he genuinely likes Lloyd more than he likes anybody. Mostly because he's probably the gatekeeper to booze. And Lloyd has that customer service sheen to him that I love where people say, oh, yeah, he's clearly evil. But he's like he's talking to the devil himself. Nah, he sounds like a a professional uh, uh, person in hospitality. Yes, that has been doing it for a number of years. So when somebody starts complaining about their spouse, their children, you just say, can't live with them, can't live without. You know? Words of wisdom, Lloyd. But <laughs> So that performance is, is off the chain, and then he has another interaction. It seems every time he has a fight with Wendy, he will lose it, his arms will go fucking ape shit. he'll go all over the place, he goes to the gold room. The second time he goes there, it's the party, and that's where he meets Grady. Grady Proper? Grady Proper. That's a, a tricky one because at the very beginning when Almond is talking, he talks about a Charles Grady that mm. was the caretaker there in 1970. And yeah, it was 10 years ten years prior. Yeah. 10 years prior, who killed his two daughters, 8 and 10 years old, and his wife. Chopped them up with an axe and stacked them neatly in another room and then blew his brains out with a shotgun. That was a Charles Grady, he says. I don't know if that's like a, a nickname, a middle name or what, or if it's a different guy. Because who Jack meets up with and refers to him uh, very clearly as Delbert Grady. He, he says his name is Delbert Grady. Mm. And Delbert is his name. He's not Charles. But maybe it's Charles Delbert Grady. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's some missing scenes where they call him Delbert Charles Grady or... Delbert, Chuck for short. I don't know what the fuck. <laughs> I don't know if I'm confused or what, but I, I'm, I don't know that it's supposed to be the same Grady. But it's clearly supposed to be the same Grady because Jack reminds him, you were the caretaker here. Oh, no. And... I don't seem to recall chopping my wife up and killing my daughters. Yes. And then he says that uh, one of his daughters took a pack of matches, tried to burn the place down. So I corrected them and when my wife attempted to intervene i corrected her so he clearly does remember being the caretaker and killing his entire family and urges jack to do the same there's a there's a nebulous line at the end of this scene that i like a lot which is the fact that i'm not the caretaker you are you've always been the caretaker i ought to know i've always been here that is what a lot of people who hinge on the idea that this is a reincarnation spirit, that Grady, whoever Grady is, was whatever, call them Jack Torrance. There is a the spirit of a person that is constantly coming back to this hotel. Either it's a, a some it's some sort of bizarre lineage. And it is it, so it's, it's this all happened before, it'll all happen again. So it is on repeat constantly. Somebody comes, they're inhabited by the spirit of the original caretaker and they end up murdering their family because that's what he did. And 
Or because that's your passage into, because if you want to escape from your life and this is a nice place to escape to, and that's how you get in, this is the portal. Yeah, exactly. So there's, a, like again, that. there's a lot of weird uh, fan theories, but, but it, at the end of the day, what you need to know is that Jack is being bombarded by these spirits who are like devils in his ear, whispering the true solution to... His unhappiness, the supreme unhappiness with his life. Whether he was using alcohol to fix a problem, it started as something good and it, all of a sudden it became a crutch that he couldn't get out from under and then it owned him. I maintain that it's probably because he hates his family. He didn't want his family. And now that he has one, you know, whatever, he's miserable. And so killing your family seems like a good solution when you're crazy and isolated and getting bombarded by this evil force, how this place seems to shine on its own. Mm -hmm. Dick, by the way, is getting shined. This entire time, uh, while he's off in Miami, for fuck's sake, Danny is able to communicate with him, sending him these powerful messages. This is not something that Danny can just wiggle his fingers and do. This is taking a supreme toll on Danny to do. He's comatose. Practically. Basically comatose. Knowing he needs somebody to come and help and save them. Uh, knowing that the the best shot at this is Dick because they're cut off from outside world at all. He's just sort of maybe partially subconsciously calling on him too because mm -hmm. Dick's just getting images of what's going on there. Um, in the book he does yell out for Dick and tries to use like a fucking psychic telephone, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it does take a toll on him, not quite to this degree, mm -hmm. where he's um, like a, a slobbering wreck. Mm -hmm. Totally useless, and mostly Tony at this point, mm -hmm. unfortunately, for poor little Danny. Danny's also getting a lot of these snippets of what's going on with his dad in the hotel. And he's getting snippets of conversation. He's getting images from the past, images from possibly the future. He doesn't really know. He's getting... And he's always sort of been able to clue into what his parents are talking about in other rooms by being able to just tune in and listen to what they're talking about. So that's taking a huge toll on him as well, because he needs to, for his own safety and for his mother's safety, to understand what's going on when he's not in the room. When he's busy being comatose, calling for Dick in a way, um, he needs to keep an, an eye on what else is going on. So Danny's almost become this omnipresent force. Uh, alongside the hotel unfortunately mm -hmm. so it is taking a huge toll on him it's it's extremely mentally taxing for all of them so it is this piano wire strung about to snap yeah especially you get this idea that if tony this manifestation of his power that we will call tony if this thing is an evil force to counter this evil force or if this is simply something that is pr trying to genuinely protect Danny. It's like a hearing aid that is at a rock concert. Exactly. That and 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 you think that in in when whatever this hotel, the Overlook Hotel, is trying to do to Danny to wear him down, when Tony is fully in control, it's either a conscious decision of this entity to take over Danny, take over Danny because, or, or it's Danny almost pressing, using it as, as a psychological blanket. I think so, to preserve his own identity yeah. and his own psyche. Mm -hmm. um, Tony's stronger than me. Tony knows more than me. Tony is the adult in this situation. As a shield. 
As a shield, exactly. Yeah, that makes more sense to me too. And that's what—that's the sort of jest you get because even his mother at first can't snap him out of it. And it's not until the ultimate warning can be realized that Danny does snap out of being Tony because it takes all of that for him to articulate the word that's been running through his mind because he's bombarded by all these conversations, these images. The one thing that has been running through his head for quite some time now and he's been saying it in his sleep, and now he wakes up screeching it, is red rum. Mm -hmm. And at first, like, if it was your first travel into, like, Overlook Hotel, you would you would think red rum. Like, maybe it's the bourbon, because that's, or maybe red he's a room. kid. Is, it, is, it, is, there, is there a room in this place that's Over red? there. <laughs> <laughs> but... You think, like, what is it this kid is calling red rum? Mm -hmm. It's not until he takes the lipstick and writes it on the door. It's about kid height, that portion of mm -hmm. the door. writes red rum in little kid writing. Uh, some letters are backwards, you know, not unlike Nine Inch Nails. Or, 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 or a little kid's lemonade stand. <laughs> a little kid's lemonade stand. Um, not so. It's mostly mirror writing. There's only two letters backwards, actually. When you look at it in the mirror, like Wendy does, and it says murder. Mm -hmm. That is that is the big warning, and this is this is how we know that shit is going as bad as humanly possible. The very famous you had you had touched on it. The very famous baseball bat scene that ends up happening that most people usually talk about remember the the most. This is where finally at the peak of fiery madness where. Jack Torrance admits, I'm going to bash your brains in. It's going to bash them right in. Yeah, I'm and, not going to hurt you, Wendy. <laughs> I'm just going to bash your brains in. Yeah. yeah. And and so that is him verbalizing what he really wants to do. And, and, and if at any point Jack Torrance, the character, was trying to reconcile that, whether, if he was genuinely how long it would have taken him to be able to say what it is the hotel wants him to do for whatever reason. It seems to be some kind of psychic release because mm -hmm. he really, after that moment, and then he gets cracked in the head, he seems almost normal as she's dragging him, what's happening, what's going on. And then when he's in the, the walk-in, uh, the pantry, excuse me, locked in there, he seems to uh, he seems to be out of it for at least a couple of minutes, trying to figure out why Wendy had locked him in there. And that's a door. I was I was saying that you yeah. like he the movie could have ended right there. And I was having a hard time remembering. Well, wait a second. How is it that he gets out of this room? Because we both know you cannot get out of these doors. We've both had interactions with these doors. We both worked in places with these doors. Mm -hmm. And when I worked at a place called the lookout inn very much like the overlook hotel like and it. it was not as grand of course but it had similar rooms and it did have a 237 and uh it did have a, a scenic view and it did get snowed in and stuff like that uh it had one of these doors and we were told like under no means do like do not go into this kitchen when it's closed if you need anything, go to the buffet kitchen. Don't come to this kitchen when it's closed. Don't come to this kitchen alone because the way that this particular walk-in is, if you're stuck in it, you're going to die in there because you're going to be in there till morning and you're not going to be able to survive. You cannot get out of this. People cannot hear you. And no one's just going to randomly check 
So if you go in there alone and the door closes behind you, you are going to die. Mm -hmm. And they were very, very clear about that. Mm -hmm. uh, don't use the, don't even use this bridge without a buddy system, mm -hmm. because they were that worried about somebody being stuck in there. You were, mm -hmm. you would be fucked if the door locked behind you. This door locks, and we know he's fucked. How did he get out of there, though, Wes? Ghosts. Ghosts. Ghost magic. I like that they uh, Lloyd berates him. Uh, it's, it's like, maybe you're not up to the channel. Oh, it wasn't Lloyd. It was it was uh, Grady. Yeah, it was. It was Grady. It was, it, yeah, yeah. And, and he was like, maybe your heart's not in it. And Jack has this moment. He's like, well, no, no, no. I'm, I can do it. I can, I can do what you want me to do. Because, I mean, like, he's just been sleeping on bags of rice and eating Oreos and crackers and Jif. And he's just, he's getting a little food coma. He's probably given up. And... Because, much like Homer did. Much like Homer did. And I can't believe that The Simpsons, because that's what my problem. I was like, I know in The Simpsons, he's just in the pantry eating and the, the ghosts basically pull him out of there. But I was like, that can't be what's in this movie. It fucking is. Yeah, the ghosts. I, I mean, they don't, they don't show, they don't show it like The Simpsons. In The Simpsons, it's like Freddy Krueger and Jason and Pinhead and all of them, like, bring him out, <laughs> out of the room. Well, there's food in there. There is. Yeah. But, um,. But in this, it is kind of that. But good news, Lids. Good news. There's good news here? There is good news because we know that Jack has fucked with the radio. We know that Jack has fucked with the cat, the snow cat. He's, he's sabotaged these their lines of communications. But they got help coming. Dick's coming. Dick's coming? Dick's coming. And Dick's you can, coming. And you can always count on Dick, Lydia. You can always count on Dick to come. You can always count on Dick to come. And and he will. And he's going to come hard. He's going to come all over that white stuff, you know, that's surrounding the building is no match for Dick. No, no, it's really not. And when Jack gets out and starts his very famous onslaught on this family and... Everything about the, 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 the axe chopping scene, you know, we've all seen the videos of him pumping, getting pumped up and going crazy. But one of the things that I find the most aesthetically pleasing about him chopping through that door is how the camera follows the axe. And it just like sways one way, slams on the door, slays, slays one way, slams on the door. I could watch that all fucking day because it is so satisfying. It truly is, especially the way that the camera doesn't just simply fluidly follow the axe because we've gotten used to a lot of very fluid camera motion mm -hmm. from the crane shots i guess they would be uh helicopter shots mm -hmm. like these overhead shots that we're going in with at the beginning to the shots on rails to all the steady cam motion it's all very smooth and then all of a sudden we're treated to this door chopping mm -hmm. and that wonderful sound that's captured doing it and the camera abruptly swinging with it and jarringly stopping at the door with each swing. Yeah, it's it's really it's really beautiful stuff and really well thought out stuff. And it's hard to believe because I was never I'm not a behind the scenes person, uh, like thing watcher, featurette watcher. I don't really read a lot of analysis, really. I have to really like a movie to read any of it. And even then I read very little. So I hadn't I hadn't seen um that featurette until today i hadn't mm -hmm. seen the the shots of jack nicholson getting 
pumped up with the I'm an axe murderer. <laughs> I am getting jazzed. You know, I hadn't seen that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. But um, I do understand a little bit of production. It just didn't really sink into me until today on how much of this was on the fly. What sort of decisions were made, like anything, on any movie set. There's a lot of decisions made and spur of the moment just because of the flow of things or the discoveries or experimentation. You know, throw the 35 mil on the camera and grab a 50 mil and like the 18 mil in your pocket and put the 13 half mil in someone else's pocket. Because mm-hmm. I don't know what we're going to shoot. We're getting Danny running down the corridor of the maze. You know, that's all they're shooting. Four lenses because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. I'm wondering if that chopping scene was based on something that had influenced him. If it was spur of the moment. If it was, because, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, you could sit there and say, oh, because of all the fluid camera mo- motion, this will really work well to be jarring and scary here. So I, I don't know, but it does really work to make this the most intense scene that we've had all of this tension built up to. And we don't necessarily get any sort of tension released because normally this is where somebody either gets killed or a killer gets, gets um, incapacitated mm-hmm. in one way or another. All that we get is Danny's potential escape. Um, The door, two doors have been broken down with an axe. Mm. And off in the distance, we hear the sweet sound of Dick. We do hear the sweet sound of Dick. We know Dick's coming hard. and He's pushing through. He's pushing through. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you can always count on it. Now, uh, when Danny gets out that little bathroom window, Wendy doesn't seem to be able to fit. And that's when Jack gets through the door, does his very famous here's Johnny line. As I'm sure a lot of horror trivia fans will know, there are multiple takes of that scene. He tried a lot of different stuff. Uh, here's Johnny was what stuck. Very cool. Kind of lost in time because I don't know how many people nowadays, you know, a younger generation would be, who's Johnny? They wouldn't know Johnny Carson. They wouldn't know anything about that. But I mean, I think if you're... 30s you should probably you would know who johnny carson is i feel that or if you don't if you are like 18 you've never seen johnny carson and you don't care to um but you've read the book his Mm. actual name is john much like my dad's name is john and the the nickname is jack Mm. he wasn't born as jack so you could you know take that as he's just saying what his real name is you could say yeah that works too it's also like what he's admitting his real personality is yeah maybe maybe, door top and killer yeah that's that's the johnny you think that'd be the jack but maybe it's just because i have a the movies have tainted my understanding of the name jack jack's the evil name sorry uh my uncle jack that uh, is a real person. <laughs> and my dad would be nodding enthusiastically along like, yep, with you. Yep. yep, mm-hmm. yep Jack yep, is yep. the evil Jack name. Jack is the evil name. When Dick does show up, this is where you might ask yourself, so this is a horror movie. Where's my body count? Where's anything? What's uh, There's a lot of psychological damage going on, and there is menace, there is mayhem, but there has not yet been murder. I need my M's. Yeah, you need your bright red blood. So here comes Dick and man, there's something I, up until this point, I had a real negative opinion, not about his character. I love, I, I love this character. I love the performance. It's fucking spectacular. But I always thought it was buck wild that this guy is in Miami, gets on a plane, gets to Denver, rents a car from the airport drives five five and a half hours gets a snowcat goes 25 miles 
up to the fucking Overlook Hotel, then walks through the front door, is there for less than five minutes, and here comes Jack Torrance, screaming like a banshee, and aces him right in the chest with an axe. And that's it. And I said, that's a long way to... Oh, I, I was like, he came there, and I, and I was almost... What is he trying to... He's trying to help, obviously. He is oh, yeah, there. he does help. You know, that's all he needed to do. It is true, because in the end, if he didn't come there... I'm not saying that... I, I don't think Jax ever would have gotten out of that maze, but it doesn't matter. He was the... Self, he was the... He brought the vessel to ship the others off to safety. That's what he He brought does. the vessel, and he distracted them long enough to scatter. Exactly. And and so he does accomplish that. Wendy is going through the house. Now, this is... Wendy is the only person up until this point that truly had no idea what was happening. No, up until this point, which is fun, because not only does she get a hint as to what has gone on around them, what is going on around them, what the history of the hotel, she gets it all in a nice, neat little kinder surprise right up her ass by being treated to the... The twins and bestiality or furry sex or whatever. It's kind of like a furry sex thing. The ghosts. People who are not fucking there. It all explains the girl in the bathtub to her, I'm sure, if she's thinking coherently at all by this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Blood everywhere. Mm -hmm. Lovely party. Like, fucking blood down his face. She does see Dick's body, but I'm wondering at this point, does she even know that's that's actually happened? If uh, you're thinking in the Stephen King verse, no. She's probably not being able to tell reality from from myth right now. Uh, She sees... What has been plaguing Danny and and plaguing many people who have only seen clips of this film. The elevator full of blood. Mm -hmm. She is the one that ultimately sees that in all of its glory. The elevator opens for her. Danny has seen flashes of this elevator full of blood. Jack has seen Before he even got there. Before he even got there. And it's... We've seen it probably 20 times by Mm -hmm. the time we actually see it. And it's... For Wendy, that the elevator opens. Mm-hmm. And it's glorious. It's you wanted gl- blood, you said? Here you I, go. I definitely wanted blood. Dick's dead. Dick, Dick, d- dead Dick, bloody Dick. Dead bloody that? Dick. Nobody. He is, he's done. I, I, I do get all the blood I can possibly handle. I think that this sequence is probably my favorite. I love seeing all like the ghosts. I love this idea of, of a person not understanding things. The Jack is there to be tormented and broken by this house. Danny has known about this house and what's going on before he even arrived, but truly understands it within, I would say, an hour of being there. He has that conversation with Dick. Dick knows exactly what's going on. He knows about that fucking hotel. The only one that has no idea, she does not have a shine. She is not being directly bombarded. No, she's being tormented by her own fucking husband, who is in turn being tormented by the hotel, and he was probably a dick anyways, but... No, she's pretty used to being tormented by him, it seems. Yeah, so this is where the lens gets turned and she can see what is truly going on. She is terrified, shivering, brandishing a knife, just wandering through the place, and she manages to get outside. Meanwhile, Danny has been outside in the frigid cold 
with no jacket and no boots and fucking well he's got shoes on but the he, death sentence for me you would be dead he's got no mitts he's got nothing he and he and he's like again he's five six seven whatever yeah. like this is hypothermia temperature but there's a fucking silver lining in all of this there is a silver lining to all of this joyful boy play joyful boy play that has been <laughs> that has been going on you mean his father chasing him through a maze with an axe well, it's because before he was frolicking with his mother through that maze. Now, the hedge maze is a, is a thing that's like like a referenced a few times in the film. We see them playing in and around it. We know that Wendy and Danny went in there, and I bet you they went into that maze a dozen or so times. Because what else are you gonna do? I'm... Oh yeah, like nothing. Uh, but you do get one of my favorite camera tricks too, which also lends to the foreboding of that maze, where there's a shot where. Um, and Jack is looking at the scale model of the hedge maze that's in the overlook. Mm-hmm. And then it pans down and you see a little tiny Wendy and Danny. And then the camera takes us into the maze where they actually are. Mm-hmm. So it's showing like Jack looking over this maze, right? Mm-hmm. So now we have Jack lording over this maze. Yeah. Entirely. It's, and Danny does a couple of fun tricks. That I like. I love this chase sequence a lot. I think that it's really, really strong stuff. I love the way it's filmed. Yeah. I love that that uh, bug's eye view. Like you're really close to the ground. It really makes you know the the, the hedge is 13 feet high, but it's might it as looks, well be a mile high at this point. Yeah, yeah exactly. And Danny is being chased here, and it, it seems as though uh, Danny is the primary target because, and that would be the hotel's design. Because they haven't encountered a problem like this before. I mean... Well, they've dealt with Dick. Dick, yes, but Dick was never against the house. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And there was lots of other interference. And Dick was never really alone in there, I don't think. Yeah, exactly. So I I don't know how this place... I don't... Like, it's weird to say how this hotel operates when it's got a thousand fucking people in it all the time. I don't think that the hotel itself really necessarily needs or wants anybody. It hones in on people who need or want it. Yeah, that's very, I like that. That's very good. Mm-hmm. That's very good. Yeah. Danny knows his way around this maze. Yeah, because D- he's played in it a couple times and, Jack- and looked, studied the map. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, Jack never really, is just kind of following blind. Now, he's he's been bashed in the head. There's a lot of things that have been going on with him. And... He's not malnourished because he's full of crackers, peanuts, and peanut butter. I mean, that's more than enough food for you. You'd be, like, bloated. You'd be like, I've eaten too much today if you oh had all, if all those crackers and shit. Yeah, and oh, it's the Oreos that he has open that are, the, like, blasphemy. Well, then again, like, I don't know I don't know how I could handle you on that much sugar. No. I don't, I don't even – I don't want to think about it. It's scarier than this movie. Like – the uh, sugar and the peanut butter is enough alone because I don't think that was all natural. Like, I think it was Jif. So it's yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's like just a big thing of Jif, which is basically just eating icing. But maybe that was all just for show and he was actually just having a couple handfuls of peanuts. There you go. There you go. That's what he's doing. When when Danny loses him, like, you know, I think it's very appropriate that he's watching some Roadrunner cartoons earlier in the in the picture. Because this is a very Roadrunner, Wiley, Coyote thing. He may as well have painted a big tunnel on the wall and had Jack run into it. What he does is he makes 
he Jack doesn't really know his way around the maze, but he's not an idiot, and he can see Danny's footprints in the snow. Yeah. So he's just following it. What Danny decides to do is walk back on his tracks, bury his tracks, and hide in the hedge maze, like the the bush itself, and wait for his father to pass, which works. And then Jack is completely fucking lost in this place, and Danny gets out the other end. We did this when we were having snowball fights as kids, and I'd never seen this picture. And it was one of those things that you saw one of the older kids do. So we would always do these wars where one person was the bad guy, or you'd have like two people on the bad guy side, a bunch of people on the good guy side, and it's kind of like us versus them. And so they would try to lure you places or not let you know where they were by going back over their tracks all the time. And so I learned it from watching older kids do it, or maybe my siblings, I can't quite remember. Or any, it could have been a cartoon when you were very young and it just stuck in your head as a good idea, where it stuck in Danny's head as a great idea. Yeah. I can't see it working because sure, he has the advantage of speed and knowing his way through the maze. His father is also following him to kill him with an axe and has a longer stride, although he is stumbling. He's, he's limping. Yeah. But... I mean, I can't see the amount of time that Danny takes. You're, you're positive that Jack would have caught up. It all works to create tension in a chase oh, scene, yeah. but I can't see it actually working. So kids at home, when your father's chasing with an axe, don't bother trying this. Grab your cell phone. Yeah. It's not 1980. It's <laughs> you not 1980. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do like the scene aesthetically. Uh, once Danny has escaped unbeknownst to Jack, there's a scene where Jack is walking down towards one of the lights because it's a very well-lit maze. Mm -hmm. Um, He's walking down a corridor in the maze against a light and if you're going to make a fucking painting out of any of these scenes, that's really it for me. Yeah, there's one moment where his axe is just, it's not when it's raised, but as the axe comes down, it's just so where you can see it's the tilted... And tell it's an axe. Yeah, you can tell it's an axe very clearly, and he's hunched over. I I said, if if that is not lithograph or whatever you want to call it, if that is not something that can be framed on the wall... A lithograph, like a wax tablet? You say a daguerreotype. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. But it's like, that should be artists out there. If you want to do something cool in like watercolor or... gouache, yeah, that would be so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be fucking breathtaking. I'd buy that. I'd fucking put that on my wall for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, and and so then you have uh, Wendy and Danny reunited. I love that she sees them and instantly just throws the knife down. No need for you anymore, knife. Whereas Jack is fucking baying at the moon. He's just... (laughs) Basically. Yeah, he, he is just howling. I love this performance too because it is just the complete degeneration of a man that he is an animal at this point he is just howling in murderous rage and he's just frustrated he's cold you can see danny seems all right yeah like you were saying like you've been out there for 10 fucking minutes man and your son's been out there for maybe a half an hour yeah and he's fine uh and you're like freezing to death okay whatever yeah Maybe yeah. he has no tolerance. Maybe it was all the booze he didn't drink, the ghost booze. I don't know. What- do you think, he, he, do you get drunk off ghost booze? Well, he does. He definitely does. Especially when we find out that he's more ghost than man. Now, as day breaks, we see our old buddy Jack is frozen to death. And, mm-hmm. and probably one of the most still-shotted thing. aside from, you know what, I take that back. It's the, the Grady twins, 100%, are the most, is the image from the movie that you will see the most. But I think Jack frozen... Especially when it's like a cold day. I always see people posting. Like, I've seen it recently for yeah. sure. And I mean, th- that is probably the number one most disappointing scene for fans of the book. I'm not necessarily 
deeply disappointed by it, I found it quite shocking. And that's what it, it accomplishes. What And I've used the word accomplish probably 20 times in this show. Um, not that I'm counting or anything. But the scene, the smash cut to Frozen Jack mm-hmm. does a lot of work to shock us. Mm-hmm. Especially after being in such a dark climate previously. The last thing we saw was the, the cat going off into the darkness and the the house being enshrouded in darkness and the maze succumbing to darkness jack psyche succumbing to darkest darkness if we're going to go like psychological there and then smash cut to bright daylight and frozen jack mm-hmm. with that same sort of look that he had when he first started losing it in the overlook when he's watching wendy and danny enter the mm-hmm. maze wearing that weird beatnik sweater mm-hmm. <laughs> so now that's not the last, last, last scene, though. No, the last, last scene that we get is a slow zoom on the 4th of July party where we see from 1927, was it? We see a big old bunch of people all celebrating. It's that party that they saw many times. And dead center of the photo is Jack Torrance, or at least someone that looks exactly like him. Yeah, which, you know, you can go one of two ways on that. You know, that he resembled a ghost that was already there, so the building was confused and attempted to repossess him. Mm -hmm. Or he's always been the caretaker there, Mm -hmm. which I guess is the most plausible, although supernatural. Very supernatural, nebulous. And I think that, I remember the first time I ever saw that, when it ended like that, I just didn't get it. Would he have seen himself in that photo? Did that photo exist? Did he absorb into the photo? That's the thing. The, the, and, and that is where I am at now. I genuinely feel like the moment he died, he he was included in that photo. I see. Mm-hmm. I, so I, he would have been flipping through the scrapbook and saw himself and had a total mindfuck seeing that he's, in fact, always been the caretaker there. Yeah, I I think that you become incorporated. I don't know if your ghostly image... We've seen lots of movies in which the spirits of the dead get put into pictures. That's not anything so outlandish and new. Mm. It exists in stories, or the picture of of Dorian Gray. We see like supernatural paintings all the time in, in narratives, photographs, are no different. And you could even go one step further that maybe every single partygoer in that photo is someone who's died at this place. And just over time, it's become populated. We don't know, right? And that photo is a photo that's probably been in that lobby for fucking years and no one ever really looks at it. No one ever looks to see if the images of people are changing or if more people are getting added to the photo every time. We definitely saw Lloyd um, in Wendy's tour before Mm. she escaped where he was making out with his uh bear friend Mm -hmm. so maybe lloyd had some met some sort of end Mm -hmm. that was related to that yeah yeah, yeah. the blood on what looked like delbert's face could wouldn't have been from a self-inflicted gunshot wound by especially because they kept saying double barrel shotgun yeah that leaves a mess holy Um, fuck but I don't know if that was Delbert that said Smashing Party. It could have been somebody else. But I'll bet you they're in that photo. I bet you mm-hmm. Lloyd's in that photo. I bet you Dogman's in that photo. I haven't looked that close. But I'm sure that you could go online and look at it. Because everyone loves to share and screen cap that. Yeah. So so th- this is this is a, a, a film that really challenges your concepts of time. It really chal- uh, challenges your concepts of the afterlife and 
what is truly going on. And I think that one of the things that I will take away from The Shining to my grave at this point, whether I end up in that portrait or not, is to, this is a perfect example. If you come at this movie, allow this movie to be told to you. Allow the story to be told to you. Do not go into The Shining with preconceived notions about what you think horror should be, what you think the story should be, even if you've read the book already. And mm. I and I think you'll bump into a hell of a lot less if you just allow things to be told. And when I was younger, I liked way more stark interpretations of things. I did not like uh, film theory. I did not like to interpret things. I wanted things explained to me. As an adult, that is far less appealing to me. A lot of the fun about film to me is discussing film or being able to sit back and think even while you're watching it. Mm -hmm. Cause that's one thing that this movie asks you to do. If you were to sit down with like turn off brain insert film sort of mentality, you would definitely sit back at the end of this, which is, this is what I understand the reaction of a lot of people has been or had been when it first came out was what the hell did I just see? Mm -hmm. Cause they, they're expecting those explanations that never come. They're not, thinking about what they're watching while they're watching it. They can't seem to multitask in that way. They can't walk and chew gum. So this does kind of ask you to do that while being, you know, lulled into this like oral and visual treat that this film really is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I did love it. And it's fitting because it is that cold that you literally could freeze to death if you sat down outside. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It was uh Frosty, took a little bit for you to get to the front door. Did. Did. I was and, worried, worried to open it. <laughs> I would, you open the door and it's just me as Jack Torrance frozen with my eyes half rolled up and my teeth chattered and just covered in snow. And I'd jump in the snow cat and take off to safety. Oh, wait, I'm already safe. <laughs> I was going to say, like, how are you in danger? I'm the one that's dead. Well, I don't know. The heater hasn't kicked on in a little bit. Oh, my God. It's this house. Mm-hmm. And all the raucous parties and dead hookers in the bathtub. Well, that, but, uh, you know, I think we'll be all right. Yeah. What do we got next for him? Next, we have The Strangers, because we're sort of in a home invasion-y mood, because even though this wasn't a home invasion film, it has that feeling when someone's chasing you around with an axe and chopping through doors. And it was a request, was it not? It was. I think our old friend Thomas that we talked about earlier today requested okay. it. Cool. And and it's been uh, it, th this is a film that I'm pretty excited to tackle. It's considered by many to be one of the the uh, finest uh, new horror films, one of the best examples of home invasion. A, a good contender for shut the fuck up when you say there's no such thing as good modern horror. Hmm. Okay. Cool. I'm excited for that. And then after that, we're going to hit Howl Night to deal with that sort of theme again mm -hmm. as far as home invasion i and haven't seen it so i'm pretty excited we're going back in time back to where i'm the most powerful <laughs> the 80s we were just in the 80s 1980 proper 1980 dead center well i know but i was powerful today too didn't you feel it oh kind of my grandmother called it the shine yeah, okay, you're powerful. Thank you. Yeah, that's why I kept getting flashes of your balls. What the fuck? Jesus. <laughs> like, 8 by 10 glossies. I just kept, you, like, passing people 8 by 10 glossies of your balls. It's what like when the elevator opens up and just my sack swings out of it. <laughs> I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to a very gross ending of Dead Air.